20 miles north of Mobile, Alabama, just off the Mobile River, there is a stone buried deep in the soil. It sits just outside of a tiny town with a population of just 32 people called Bucks. The stone is about two feet tall, made of sandstone, angled on top and only a few inches thick. It has a weathered brown color. There are words on both sides of this rock. It's not just a stone, it's a marker. On the side that faces north, it reads U.S. Lat 31, 1799. On the side facing south, it reads Dominio de S.M. Carlos IV, Lat 31, 1799. 1799 was, of course, the year this stone was placed at this exact location. It is meant to determine the precise location of the 31st parallel latitudinal line. Around the world, the 31st parallel stretches through Baja, California and Mexico, the Punjab region in India, the border of Iraq and Iran, and nearly the entire northern border of the state of Florida. Over two centuries ago, the land south of this line was almost entirely Spanish. The land that would soon become Alabama, however, was still French. Mobile itself was founded as the capital of the French colony of Louisiana at the very beginning of the 18th century, when France was still trying to gain a foothold in North America. They were comfortable in their settlement in Quebec, but the Gulf Coast was still a struggle. Their rival, Spain, held the region to the east, but this little foothold in Mobile could be substantial to their presence in the south. But as was always the case, the colonies across the sea were soon facing trouble due to the drama in their home countries. Britain and France were at war. The fight was over land, both European and colonial. Britain was seeking to be the main empire on the continent and were willing to eliminate France from the conversation entirely. By 1763, France had lost the Seven Years' War and retreated from their foothold in Louisiana. The rivalry between France and Britain only grew more brutal, but Britain had acquired some brand new territory, the Gulf Coast. Britain had struck a deal. Everything east of the Mississippi would now be Britain's. Everything west of the Mississippi that had been previously French would be passed to Spain. So, Spain loses Florida but gains Louisiana. Got it? Well, it's about to be way more complicated. Britain now cracks Florida's panhandle in half. Everything between the Mississippi and the Perdido River would be West Florida, and everything east and south of that would be East Florida. For the first time in Florida's history, we had defined borders. At that moment, the panhandle was nearly twice the size that it is today. It extended all the way west to what is now present-day Baton Rouge in Louisiana. When the British colonies in New England revolted and launched a revolution, the colonies of East and West Florida were invited along. We declined the invitation, and though George Washington led a war of independence, Florida mostly sat on the sidelines, loyal to our dying breath. When the Treaty of Paris was signed to officially end the American Revolutionary War, West and East Florida were traded yet again. We were Spanish, then we were English, and now Florida was being handed back to Spain. Then Spain handed Louisiana back to the French. That's when that stone buried in the soil all these years later comes into play. Another treaty was made in 1795 between the Spanish and the United States. It was called the Treaty of San Lorenzo. The United States was brand new, having just sloughed off their reliance on the British Empire. The French were already friendly with the states, but the Spanish that held land on the same continent were still wary. With the Treaty of San Lorenzo, the two nations agreed to be friendly. 
It opened New Orleans as a port for the United States. It was also one of the most significant blows to the lands of the indigenous persons in the area, as it officially ended any agreement between their leaders and the Spanish protection. They were now exposed to even more threats. This is because the establishment of what land belonged to who was at the top of everyone's minds, and the nations needed to officially draw the lines. It's with that in mind that President George Washington, in one of his last acts as president, assigned one of the most prominent surveyors in American history to draw the line between Spanish and American claimed land. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the premiere of season three. Today's story, the shape of Florida, the shifting tides, and the arbitrary lines that divide us. It had been raining all day along the shores of the St. Mary's River. The St. Mary's River is an intricate snaking waterway with a handful of extended segments that duck and weave through marshland until it finally culminates in a thin droning river that extends west. From the shore you could see land only a few miles out, but it's so misty that it was hard to see. The rain would pass and the clouds would move, but in just a few moments the wind would return and the storm would strike up again. The fog encapsulated the horizon. It's not the kind of weather you normally see in Florida. Our storms usually explode onto the scene and tear up the sky until disappearing to sunlight again. But right now, I'm not in Florida. When one crosses a state line, it's hard to resist stopping at state visitor centers. Maybe that's just me, but really, it's difficult to not stop. Now, I'm already a fan of rest stops. I know that's very weird. It's basically just a bathroom, but something about them is very interesting to me. They're permanent places with impermanent guests. It's always a bit ominous there. State visitor centers are another breed of rest stop. They're built exclusively to advertise the state as best as possible while still basically being a bathroom. They're trying to entice you to do all of the amazing things that you can do while you're taking a very brief or potentially very long trip to their state. 20 years ago, before the advent of smartphones, places like this were wildly successful in catching one's eye. There are brochures for every attraction in specific areas with maps pointing you on your way. The Georgia Visitor Center even has a booth where a friendly individual hands out spoons where guests can taste praline butter and peach jam, and yes, I pronounce it praline. The Florida Visitor Center is similar, brochures and maps, but somehow we've made it flashier. There are televisions on all the walls, there's an astronaut statue, and a kid's play area decorated like a pirate ship. Even the Christmas tree was three times taller, covered in neon seashells and other ocean life. Just a few turns east from the Georgia Visitor Center, you wind up in the town of St. Mary's, named for the river. The beginning of the Florida-Georgia line is here, off in the water, bobbing and weaving along the main flow of the river. A quick note here, when you're spelling St. Mary's, as in the river or the town, there's no apostrophe in it. It doesn't belong to St. Mary. It's possibly in honor of the several saints who share the name Mary. English colonists in Georgia began to settle down by the river here near the Revolutionary War, and the city was eventually incorporated by 1802. Today, it's the launching point for a ferry that carries visitors along the St. Mary's River, across the Cumberland Sound, and to an island that is inaccessible by cars. 
It's the Cumberland Island National Seashore, where wild horses run along its 36,000 acres. I would love to spend a day there, but unfortunately, this is not the Georgia podcast. The city also has a seafront main street with a couple of restaurants that serve very good cheesecake, and most importantly, there's the St. Mary's Submarine Museum. The Submarine Museum is a two-story building filled to the brim with historic submarine models, submarine flags, medals, awards, badges, pins, photographs, and more. The hallway leading to the second floor is covered in intricately stitched old submarine flags made specifically for each sub. Most of the images on these flags feature angry-looking fish, oftentimes shooting torpedoes from their mouths. They're each different with their own strange style, and some include how many ships that particular submarine conquered in battle. Upstairs is case upon case of historic memorabilia and an extensive research library. Downstairs is a periscope that actually looks out to the roof of the building, along with some mannequins in uniforms and a gift shop. Without the hundreds upon hundreds of relics, this building might be a church annex or some drab office, but it is, instead, a treasure trove of very specific historical artifacts and one of the most fun museums I've visited. This museum is here because this area, specifically the county it resides in, Camden County, is what's called a Coast Guard City. This means that the U.S. Coast Guard relies heavily on this city's existence. Camden County proudly proclaims that it is America's first Coast Guard city. This is partially true. The first city named as a Coast Guard city is Grand Haven, Michigan. However, Camden County seems to have been helping the longest. It is literally the oldest city that is a Coast Guard city, if that makes sense. And on top of that, there's the naval submarine base Kings Bay, which is just a little bit upriver. From this city, it's said you can sometimes see active submarines as they head out to sea. Not today, however. I could barely see the Florida shore from here, but I knew what was there on that island. There's a fort. After all of the mayhem at the turn of the 19th century, heavier fortifications needed to be arranged along Florida's shores. Amelia Island at the very corner of the Floridian territory was vital as it protected the St. Mary's River from the south. The U.S. started building here in 1847, and they counted on civilian workers to fortify this mostly brick structure. It's shaped like an uneven pentagon, more like a rectangle with a triangle on top. There are fortifications on each corner pointing out to the ocean. Inside those brick walls are huge dunes with stone structures on top. There, cannons the size of cars point out to the river. The fortifications along the walls are massive and beautiful, but a little ominous when you're alone on a rainy day. The empty brick rooms whistle with cold wind, and the open-air courtyard is far more inviting. We're lucky this building still exists today. It was in shambles when the Civil War broke out in the 1860s, and when the Union made its way into Georgia in 1862, the Confederates retreated, and Fort Clinch was in Union hands for the rest of the war. It was used again near the turn of the 20th century when the Spanish-American War broke out. After all this, however, it was left to waste. For 30 years, it sat abandoned. You can still see the names and initials of teenagers who visited during that time and decided to carve their name into the old stones. Someone named Artie. Someone named Ed. They seem to have visited in 1935, the same year that Fort Clinch officially became a state park. The next year, the Civilian Conservation Corps would come in to rebuild part of the fort for preservation. Triple C Company 1420 are to thank for the fort, the museum, the visitor center, and the fact that we all can visit here. 
Today, the most notable facets are the two reenactors on staff who march around the grounds in union attire and share extensive historical information about the fort. I'm told they're both educated historians, and one who chatted with me even published a book about Fort Clinch. The rooms around the fort are presented as if they're still being used. Sheets on the bed, coats on hangers, even a fire roaring in the kitchen. There was even a little pine tree in one of the quarters, decorated for the holiday, that smelled so beautiful I could have stayed in there all day. From up on the walls, as the mist rolls along the river, I was seeing the St. Mary's River from the Florida shores now. That river is amazing, designed by nature, curved and bent without care, not knowing that it is home to the invisible line between my home state and our northern neighbor. This river is the third most prominent body of water along Florida's borders after the Atlantic Ocean to our east and the Gulf of Mexico to the west. This little river runs from the Cumberland Sound westward for a little over 30 miles until it suddenly dips south. After a little while, it tucks west again for a few miles, only to return north for a little bit longer. This area is actually known as the Georgia Bend. There are basically just two tiny towns inside this bend, St. George and Maniac. It's very rural, with only a blinking red light at St. George's intersection. It's far, far away from the major cities. Just north of the bend in Georgia is the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge. South of that in Florida is the Osceola Wildlife Management Area. Between these two wildlife areas, the state border then separates itself from the St. Mary's River and begins a slight northwestern line toward Lake Seminole and the Chattahoochee River in the middle of the Panhandle. If you go south from the St. Mary's River, you are of course charting the line of the Atlantic Coast, which eventually joins up with the Gulf of Mexico at our southern tip. Florida has the longest coastline in the connected 48 states. The first longest coastline is Alaska with nearly 34,000 miles of coast. Florida has a little over 8,400. When the waters rose a few hundred million years ago, Florida fell below the surface. Over the next several million years, we would disappear below the surface again and again until about two and a half million years ago. That was when the ice age ended. During that time, Florida had appeared finally on the surface. With all of the water being consumed into massive glaciers, land was exposed that has not been since. It's estimated that Florida was nearly twice the size of its current shape. The Tampa Bay Fossil Club believes that, quote, St. Petersburg would have been more than 75 miles from the Gulf of Mexico during this time, end quote. For context, that's about how far St. Petersburg is from Walt Disney World today. When the Ice Age ended and the water returned, the state became close to the shape that it currently holds. The water never came back except in South Florida. Every year, along the shores of South Florida, the water takes the land back. All around the world, in coastal cities, the line between land and sea blurs thanks to a phenomenon called King Tide. In Florida, it's an early autumn annual occurrence. Essentially, it's directly connected to our daily cycle of low or high tides affected by the gravitational orbit of the planet, except it goes a lot more extreme. In Miami, it seeps over the edge and into the streets where, for days, it will lay stagnant in parking lots and roadways. I've seen it myself. It's completely surreal. It's so common in life in the city and surrounding towns that folks have adapted. They've changed routes or altered schedules. Some years, it's worse than others. In 2016 on Virginia Key, they experienced four feet of tides, according to NOAA. 
For some ecologists, the king tide is of no concern. Flood drainage has been installed in many cities in South Florida to prevent excessive and dangerous flooding. One study shows that the king tides are common, but the severity of these tides has been increasing for the last 20 years. It's happening globally, the amount of water we're experiencing, but this study believes that Atlantic coastlines, particularly South Florida, are especially at risk. If the cities along those coasts want to survive, more adaptations need to be made, more drainage, more seawalls. If things stay this way, we have to be ready for what comes next. According to many models, on our current path, we have about 80 years before the shape of Florida is changed permanently. Which brings us back to the 31st parallel at the northern border. It is not a perfectly straight line. That is Joe Kinech. Yes, I do have the PhD, but I don't use that often except for up here where everybody knows me as Dr. Joe. Let's call him Dr. Joe. He's a retired historian who spent his career writing about and studying Florida's history. The reason for that is because I was in state government for 28 years as the historian for the Division of State Lands. So Joe knows our borders intimately. And one element that is so essential to that understanding is the 31st parallel, which is often called the Ellicott Line. And there are areas where it goes up and it goes down. Uh, it's not, not a perfectly straight line as you would suspect. Major Andrew Ellicott, born in Pennsylvania in 1754, was a land surveyor who spent his career defining borders for the United States. Though he aided in the surveying of land for large cities and states, he is most known for establishing the borders of the District of Columbia and the eventual city inside, Washington. This was a deeply troublesome period in his life, as the political tension in the capital he was helping to establish grew too difficult for him to manage. He took a break when he was done with the District of Columbia, but when President Washington called in 1796, he took a military escort to the Gulf of Mexico and began his survey. Spain held the land between Baton Rouge and Jacksonville all the way south to the Keys. That was Spanish Florida. The border between this Spanish land and the United States would need to be defined by Ellicott and his team of surveyors. There were, of course, hiccups. Well, the, the, the guys going over land don't have the uh, uh, luxury, shall we say, of having Ellicott with them. And therefore, when he's shooting, say, for example, at the Perdido and then going to the Escambia and going up those rivers to the point where the 31st parallel should be, and he, he was a totally competent astronomer, so he knew how to do all that reading and, and taking the azimuths, etc. Uh, he was fairly accurate, really. Uh, but uh, when they're coming and chopping a line across from point A to point B in the wilderness before anybody ever got there, uh, any white people ever got there, I should put it, um, then all of a sudden you, you can see where there are going to be some variations uh, from what um, the line really was for the theoretic line, uh, theoretical line that Ellicott and his team spent four years tracing the line of this border, leaving stones and mounds to denote their path. There are flaws in this line. It's not perfectly straight. It dips slightly or bumps suddenly north, stretching for brief moments along rivers until returning to its generally horizontal path. The only guide points to connect these lines are the rivers that stretch in and out of the territory. Over on the east coast, the line stops being a line and begins to follow the path of the aforementioned St. Mary's River. According to Dr. Joe, the decision of where to start tracing the St. Mary's River was a huge issue for Ellicott and his team. 
that was the most difficult thing to actually solve uh, was the Ellicott side of mound up as you know on the uh, on the eastern bank just north of Chattahoochee uh, and then supposedly there was a straight line surveyed uh, connecting to the headwaters of the St. Mary's River the problem is uh, the headwaters of the St. Mary's River basically the Okefenokee Swamp and finding that position has been a re- I, I, as, as recently as uh, Probably a decade ago, uh, there were surveyors still looking for the mound or the evidence of uh, Ellicott's last mound uh, in that area. Now, we have defined state lines, we know that, but the fact that we're still not entirely positive on where the Ellicott line officially meets the St. Mary's River, that is a mystery that I think I will always love. The Ellicott Line remained in place when, in 1821, the Adams-Onis Treaty was ratified by the U.S. and Spain. The United States agreed that Texas would be the sovereign land of Spain. In return, Spain gave up control of the colonies of West and East Florida. They were now territory of the United States. West Florida would eventually become Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. In Louisiana today, some counties are still called the Florida Parishes. The Perdido River would serve as the western border to the new Florida territory where it still is today. Dr. Joe tells me that the Perdido's function essentially begins and ends as a territory line. It has no trade or military advantage to it. It's just the border. With the Perdido on the west and the St. Mary's on the east, the still-established Ellicott line would remain our northern border to this very day. In every case, the shape of Florida is defined by water. Our counties, our cities, our highways. I don't need to tell you that the lines around us are arbitrary. It's our human predilection toward organization, toward easy separation of population, resources. My work is dedicated to defining the things within those lines and what makes them so different from the things beyond them. We all know, really, that there isn't much difference. But for me, it comes down to the water. The water that shines from every pocket, every gully, off the highway, out your window. Those are the lines that define us. Water is just as much home, if not more so, than the land we walk on. It nourishes that land. It built it. Where we stand was water once, swept beneath the surface. If we're not more careful, if we don't make the changes we need to make, it might return. That is, frankly, unacceptable. Water cannot be our enemy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is the season 3 premiere and I am so glad that you are here listening. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I would like to recommend a few episodes similar to this one. You should check out September's episode about our state flag, or last May's episode about the city of Okahumpka. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it brightens my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. 
I would like to send a very special thank you to Dr. Joe Kanech. He's a marvelous historian, and he has some books that I would highly recommend you check out. Well, I do have a new book out on Tallahassee. Uh, it's called Forts, Ports, Canals, and Wars, An Uncommon History of Tallahassee. Uh, that just came out from the Century Press here in town. Uh, and, of course, my third Seminole War book that I did with John and Mary Lou Missal. You can also do some additional reading about Andrew Ellicott and the threat of sea level rise at the links in the show notes below. Special thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on our social media channels. You can check out more of her art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. I'll see you next Monday when we discuss the past and future of Greyhound racing in Florida with Kate McFall, the Florida Director of the Humane Society of the United States. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>